Welcome to the podcast at DC, hosted by The Lab at DC. The Lab is an applied scientific team in the executive office of the mayor of the District of Columbia. We use science to learn what works for Washingtonians. I'm your host, Sam Quinney. Exposure to cold is one reason that mortality in the United States peaks in winter. And a higher heating price increases exposure to cold by reducing heating use. It also raises energy bills, which could decrease spending on food, medicine, and other expenses that could improve people's health. On this episode of the podcast, I'll be talking with Seema Jayachandran, a professor of economics at Northwestern University, and Seema led a study that looked at the effect of heating prices on winter mortality. We'll also be joined on the podcast by Jennifer Culp and Dawit Afa, energy efficiency experts at the D.C. Department of Energy and Environment, or DOEE for short. Let's start out. Can you all introduce yourself and where you're coming from? Hi, I'm Seema. I'm an economics professor at Northwestern University. Hi, I'm Jennifer. I'm an energy program specialist with the Weatherization Assistance Program at the Department of Energy and Environment. I'm Dawit Afa, energy auditor from Department of Energy and Environment. Seema, Jennifer, and Dawit, welcome to the podcast at DC. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thanks. Great. Seema, we're going to start with you, but we're actually going to take a step back from before the study that we're going to focus on today. And I know that you studied electrical engineering and physics before getting into economics. wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how that led to your work now. Yeah, so I I started out in studying physics and engineering, and I really love math and analysis. But at some point, I realized I would love to be using that part of my brain and those skills to answer social problems or kind of problems that are more about how society works and how to make it better. And I realized economics and doing data analysis is a nice way to combine this quantitative interest of mine with some of the ways I would like my work and my research to impact the world. And so that's how I started working on looking at projects and evaluations and policies in low-income countries as well as the U.S. related to improving the environment or social aspects of life and reducing poverty. And Jennifer and Dawit, why the environment? Why energy and the environment for you all? Why DOEE? So for me, my professional career started off at a consulting firm. And I noticed I had gotten this degree in environment and I had gotten a master's in environmental management, but I didn't feel like I was making an impact in the environment like I really wanted to. So the great thing about the Department of Energy and Environment is that it allows you to use those environmental and intellectual skills while also making those one-on-one connections with the clients, with the residents, and seeing your impact in an actual, tangible way is just so spectacular that I couldn't say no. Dawit, how about you? Yes, yeah, so when I was in the private sector, I used to do more product efficiency and machine efficiency. So I got into getting efficiency out of every process and machinery. But once I get to DOEE, not only I can do the efficiency stuff, I also see how it does affect the human life firsthand. So that drew me more. More into public service. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And for either of you, tell us a little bit about DOE, the D.C. Department of Energy and Environment. How would you describe the role that DOE plays in terms of serving district residents? 
I would say that's our number one mission exactly right there is to serve. So we're a medium-sized agency and we do everything from clean river cleanup to monitoring the air quality to ensuring that the residents of the District of Columbia have their energy needs met. And that's the work that DeWitt and I do in the energy administration is ensuring that we help all residents with those energy burdens through LIHEAP, the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program, UDP, Utility Discount Program, as well as our Weatherization Assistance Program. And Doe, are there any other programs that we should know about in terms of DOE's work that you work on? I think Jennifer mentioned everything. The only thing is the solar mm. or all. And Department of Environment and Energy does represent its name mm. because it actually does uh, with passionate all the people who work there, including the director, is really, really passionate about administrating environment and energy. And you can actually see it on people's every day. Sounds like a great place to work then. Well, Seema, let's get into the study that we're going to focus on today. So we're going to get into the weeds a little bit because, you know, we have a weedy type of listener on the podcast. But before we do, would you give the listeners a sneak peek into what you learned? So briefly tell us what question you were trying to answer and what you found. Our study was trying to understand how high home heating prices affect people's health, specifically mortality. When it costs more money to heat your home in the winter, does that increase mortality in the United States? We look at an intermediate step of what happens when people's home heating price goes up, and we find that they use quite a bit less heat, but they also don't cut back one for one, so their heating bills go up and Probably through both of those channels, it leads to an increase in their mortality rate, unfortunately. Well, so we're going to definitely explore that in more detail. But first, let's get a sense of the problem from everyone. So there's a lot of scientific literature that shows that mortality in the U.S. tends to peak in winter months. And Seema, how might this actually be playing out for people? Why is it that in those months of the year, people are more likely to experience disease or other health problems that can unfortunately lead to mortality? So if you looked at the patterns of mortality in the U.S., they peak in the winter, and there are different reasons why that might be the case. So one reason is we spend more time indoors and communicable diseases like influenza spread. But another one is that cold weather, the exposure to that cold has physiological effects on us and is bad for our health. And so our study is trying to understand this aspect of cold and health. And there is already evidence that on very cold days, people's mortality increases and that our body's reaction to that very cold temperature can lead to an increase in strokes, in heart attacks, and many other serious health problems. So this study and your results really hit home for me in an unexpected way. I grew up in Vermont for the most part where it gets very cold in the winter. And my father, who started out most of his career as an environmentalist and a true hippie, eventually over time through his work and care about the environment, started working in heating oil, of all things. But he did it through an energy cooperative that he helped run, the idea behind which was that if people are able to buy heating oil collectively, we can lower the overall price. 
He also worked on weatherization. And unfortunately, in many instances, he would receive calls from residents who were having trouble paying their bill and were worried that their energy was going to get shut off or that they were out of heating oil and didn't have any way to get it. So while I was appreciative when my father talked about these sorts of things, that they were trying to work out solutions for residents in need, what this work says to me is that those things weren't just being nice or being accommodating, when you're helping people with their energy costs, you're literally having an effect on their health and even on whether or not they're able to survive through the winter. So it's a tremendously interesting study and I think very important for those reasons that we talk about it here. And Jennifer and Dawit, can you tell us what we see in D.C. in the colder months? I mean, we're obviously not Minnesota or Vermont, where I grew up. But what do we see kind of on the ground in D.C.? How does cold weather play out and how does DOE try to support residents during that time? Absolutely. So a lot of our low-income families and low-income residents, they're spending a much higher portion of their salary specifically taking care of those heating bills. And a lot of our residents, you know, due to health care and grocery costs, are unable to pay these utility bills. So what we find often is to keep their house warm, people will turn on their stoves, they will open up their ovens, they'll do some very unsafe, very dangerous behavior. So what we're seeing is people need help, they need support. So we do have some programs that are available. We have the one-time emergency energy assistance where if a household member is in danger of having their heat cut off, they give us a call and we'll give Pepco a call on their behalf and prevent the cutoff from happening. And at the same time, if they have a problem with their heating system, they can call 311 and tell us what they have. Normally what we ask them to do is get an estimate. Once they send us, normally we go and address the issue within three days. Sometimes if they can't do it, I actually give them portable heaters until they fix their issue. So we take it seriously. In addition to, we'll see stoves on, we'll see ovens open. A lot of families will also put wrapping over their windows. Mm. They'll put blankets underneath their doors to help from the air coming inside and out. You'll see families also cover up outlets because some air can come in and out Mm. of outlets as well. So the residents are certainly trying their best to keep themselves warm and safe during those cold months, but we're here to help and that's our role. When we talk about the other things that you might be able to do, like what are the most effective ways to actually increase the efficiency of the houses in either cold or warm ones, aside from those things that, Jennifer, you already acknowledged could be particularly dangerous, like running the oven as a source of heat? What would you prefer to see people doing and what do you support them in? I think the biggest by far is air sealing. Hmm. Air sealing is most cost effective. It's cheaper to do. Air sealing is part of the weatherization. What we do is we have a machine we call blower door, and we measure how much air movement is in the house. So just to make it short is once we run the blower door, we get a blower door number. That number called CFM, cubic feet per meter. So that will translate that in air change per hour. So we calculate how much air is changing per every hour in that house. The more it changes, the less efficient that house is. That means all the cool air or the heated air just runs outside Mm. without being used. So once we do the air sealing using the blower door as a measure of to pinpoint where the leaks are, 
of course, we make it airtight. Mm. And that doesn't stop there because you make the house tighter, then it affects how the house performs. Mm. That means you have to investigate how the combustion appliances behave because they need air to breathe. Mm. So it's not just we do one thing and we leave. We got to see the whole house, how the system and how it operates. Once we change one thing, we have to analyze everything. And by the end, when we leave the house, we have to make sure everything's functional and safe. That's great. So is it accurate to think of air sealing as one step that's kind of like fixing what, you know, most people might refer to as maybe a drafty house or something like that, but it's a whole system that you have to think of in terms of efficiency, right? Because you wouldn't want to do something that then makes their heater work worse, right? Exactly. Yeah, I think in terms of a homeowner who's looking to make their home more energy efficient, I think definitely the first step is air tightness. Air tightness through caulking around the windows, ensuring that the air isn't coming underneath the doors, taking a look at your outlets. Sometimes if you put your hand over your outlets, especially in the cold winter, you can sometimes feel Mm. the air coming in, so just plug those up. And in addition to caulking, but also covering the windows with plastic wrap can help as well. And so all of these things, we talk about them in terms of efficiency, which has its benefits, and especially in terms of where we're getting our energy from and could have environmental benefits of it, obviously. But for the residents and the people who are working on it, it also affects cost. You know, efficiency can serve things in both of those ways. People have a lot of costs, obviously. What's special about heating costs, Seema or Jennifer or Dawit, that make them different from, say, rent or medical bills or school or anything like that? I think one thing about heating bills is that for many American households, heating bills are a nuisance, but they don't feel like you're having to make a trade-off between feeding your kids well enough or affording your medicines and paying that bill. But for a lot of low-income households, it really is a tough trade-off. And heating bills, they spike in the winter. And if people don't have savings, they face a pretty big financial hit. And so whether your house is drafty or tightly sealed, you still have to make a decision of how much to keep the heat running. And so for a lot of households, they're facing this trade-off. Do I keep running the heat and it's going to be a really high bill that I'm going to have trouble paying? Or should I keep the heat down a little bit less where I'm going to be uncomfortable. And what we find is it's going to hurt their health, but that's the tough trade-off they're unfortunately faced with. And just to add to Seema's wonderful statement, I think the thing that makes heating and utility bills kind of unique, especially in those high peak, high cool, hot days, is how unpredictable those bills are. And I think that's kind of the tipping point for our low income neighbors is they could be expecting a $50 bill, but... Out comes the $300 bill in December when you weren't expecting that. So I think also preparedness is a large portion of that. And sometimes the unpredictable nature makes it very challenging to meet that bill at the end of the month. Yeah. And it also has an adverse effect. Like if you don't have a heating in your house and you start having pipe freeze. Mm. And that freezes the busted the air. And you have water going all over the place. And if you don't have gas, you can't take a shower. So that means hygiene. And then kind of like a domino effect. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And also, I think the fact that you get billed retroactively after the fact can be a shock that you didn't anticipate. And so that really, you know, for somebody who's living paycheck to paycheck, that $300 versus $50 really makes that front and center of 
do I pay this bill? Or if I'm going to pay this bill, what has to give, even in that moment? And in many cases, it could be health or food or anything that really matters. So this is the focus of your study, right, Seema? So like, if people are having to face tough choices about how to spend their money in times when heating prices increase, what's the effect on mortality? So that's a, obviously a really important question. How did you do it? How do you get at that sort of a question where, you know, if you wanted to think of it as an experiment, you're not going to give people more expensive gas if we really think that that's going to have an effect on important things like health. What did you look for as a researcher? How did you go about even trying to answer this question? Yeah, so we used a technique that researchers call a natural experiment, which is just the idea that it's something that happened naturally. No one engineered these differences in prices, but they were out there. But they're useful for researchers like us to take advantage of them, and estimate what happens when the price is higher. So we were looking for some force out there in the world, and specifically across the U.S., that caused pretty big changes in the price of heating for some households, but not others. And so can you say a little bit more about what that is? What did you find? What is this naturally varying thing that allows us to actually get closer to an experiment that to tell us more about this? We combine... Two facts, or two facts, make our study possible. The first fact is that whether households in the United States use electricity or natural gas or sometimes another fuel source for heating really differs a lot. Some parts of the U.S. are very reliant on electricity for heating, and other parts of the U.S. use mostly natural gas. So that's one thing we take advantage of, which is that Different households, different parts of the country use different kinds of energy for heating. The other fact that made the study possible is that the price of electricity and the price of natural gas don't move in lockstep. Hmm. And specifically over the period from 2000 to 2010, the price of natural gas first rose and then fell compared to the price of electricity. And that's because natural gas can get disrupted by hurricanes. So one reason it rose in the middle of the 2000s was because of Hurricane Rita and Hurricane Katrina that cut off supply from the Gulf. And so there was less supply of natural gas, so the price went up. And then Later on in the end of the 2000s, there was an increase in hydraulic fracturing of natural gas from shale underground natural gas, and that meant the supply of natural gas in the U.S. increased a lot, so the price fell. So what we do is take advantage of these two facts combined, that some places use electricity, some places use natural gas, and the price of natural gas changed a lot year to year. And what does that mean? It means in those places that use natural gas, they got a big benefit in terms of their price of heating when there was more natural gas supply. And so we can compare across these two kinds of counties or communities in the United States, and we can make comparisons year to year. This is the example of the natural experiment. Nobody went and changed the price of natural gas to help me as a researcher, but I can go and take advantage of the fact that there were these dramatic changes in the U.S. over the 2000s. So a natural gas experiment, nonetheless. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So what makes this a natural experiment? So we're trying to, in these sorts of natural experiments, be able to say, like, what we're looking at is very similar to if we had flipped a coin or rolled a die and, although no one did this, but changed the price of home heating for people. What sort of things did you have to do to investigate that and say, go from, this seems like a natural experiment to, yeah, I really feel like this will accurately answer the question. It's a great question. 
we would be worried if we looked at the patterns of who uses natural gas and who uses electricity, and it was always the northern part of the U.S. that used natural gas or the colder parts of the U.S. that use natural gas or the richer parts. Then when we see patterns in mortality that change year to year, we don't really know, was that about their energy source for heating and their heating price, or is there something else making richer parts of the U.S. be on different trajectories in terms of health? And so what we check for and what is thankfully the case for us as researchers is that it looks pretty haphazard which places use natural gas and which use electricity. There are a few patterns, Maine and Florida, the corners of the United States have less natural gas. But even when you start to look in the interior of the U.S., there's some historical accidents. Some places had cheap hydroelectric power at one point and the heating infrastructure was around electricity, and that that really persists over time. So one pattern you see is that even though the price of natural gas fell a lot, it's not that many households switched over to natural gas furnaces. There's a lot of stickiness in what energy source people use for heating. So that's not completely random, but like it's also not in a concerning way just one type of household exactly. that would be served by it. Or in the case of your paper, one county or other geographic area that would do it. So that's one reason to be confident in the answer. Let's take the other side of that. What's one reason we should be skeptical of these results? Why should we take them with a grain of salt? Yeah, because we didn't randomize, there's always a possibility that we're not realizing or we don't have data to look at some other factor that's differing across these households or these parts of the U.S. So we asked a bunch of people, what makes you worried? So over this period we're looking at, it was the Great Recession. And so we can collect data that is about how much different parts of the U.S. were affected by the Great Recession or the collapse in housing prices. And we can adjust for those in our statistical models. But there's always could be an unknown unknown that we haven't thought about that might be driving it. So any data analysis, you have to have some amount of humility that there is always a chance that you're misinterpreting something. You know, when we think about it, and I'm sure when DOE thinks about it as the people who are setting policies around these things, like also need to be mindful of that as well, of like, do we buy it? And make sure that we buy those same assumptions. Jennifer and Dawit, when you think of this as people who work in this space, like, does this seem reasonable to you as a way to assess the effects of price on mortality? Oh, definitely. Because as I mentioned before, I'm the last person who goes and assess the end result of our work. I think one thing probably to think of is if everybody turned the heat off for two days and see how you feel. Mm -hmm. And if you take that and apply it to an elderly person, the problem exaggerates even more. I can't say we save lives, but I know for sure we change people's life or improve people's life whoever lives in that residence, and that's for sure. So you see this effect of prices on people's lives that you see, like when it gets too high, people are legitimately making trade-offs that could really affect their lives. Yep. So we just heard from Dawit that, at least anecdotally in D.C., that people are making these trade-offs when prices go up or when it just becomes winter. What do we see nationally from the data that you looked at about how people change their behavior in terms of heating prices and their decisions that they have to make? We find that when the price of heating goes up, people cut back on how much heating they're using. But they don't cut back one for one. So if the price of heating goes up by 10%, 
they use three and a half percent less heating. So about one third of their response is to say, I need to keep the house colder. I can't afford to heat my house as much. But because they're not cutting back one for one, it also means their heating bills went up. And for both of those reasons, you might expect to see some harm to their health, that exposure to cold can hurt them. And the fact that their bill went up, something else had to give, and it could be other kinds of spending that are affecting their health. And are you able to measure those other types of spending in some way to see if people are really making those tough choices? In our study, we got some data from what's called the Consumer Expenditure Survey that asks households to enumerate all of their expenditures. Unfortunately, for those data sets, we don't have the same specificity of where people live. We only have that data at the state level and for some states, and it's a pretty small sample size. So unfortunately, we can't see exactly what people are cutting back on. You know, there's a budget they face, so they had to cut back on something. We aren't able to say whether they were cutting back on going to the movies, or they were cutting back on prescription medicine. Obviously, those are quite different in whether they would affect the health. So I would love to have data to dive in even more deeply to understand what exactly are people cutting off. And let me say, you know, I think any kind of evidence for policy should be a collage of different evidence. And so I can imagine doing something in D.C. or in some other locality to really dive into this question of what is happening to people's budgets when they face higher energy bills, what do they cut back on? And Jennifer or Dawit, do you have any insight in D.C. or from talking to residents or any of the data that DOE collects, like how people react to these sorts of high prices? Absolutely. In conversations with residents and conversations with clients, they'll tell me, thank you so much for helping us get involved in this weatherization program, the LIHEAP program. I haven't been able to put my daughter in childcare and she's been having to stay home and sometimes unsupervised. Those, wow. Yeah, those kind of situations because she wants to keep the heat on for her family. So I think daycare sometimes, groceries, as Seema mentioned, as well as medicines as well. Yeah. So it seems like, Seema, from the data that you're using, like we know that people do cut back on at least their heating expenditure and at least from some other research and also anecdotally that people are making a trade-off somewhere or they have to in order to make up the cost because people have a fixed budget. But we just don't know exactly what mechanism is completing the picture here. Is that accurate? Yeah. So I think from what Jennifer has seen in other studies, we know that people are cutting back on food and medicine. We also know they're using less heat. We're able to see the overall effect on how is this affecting mortality. One of the limitations of our study is I'm not going to be able to say it's mostly because people use less heat and only a little bit because they had to cut back on medicine and food or the opposite of that. But I think in many cases, it's a similar policy implication because if we gave people assistance with their energy bills, if we enabled them to have weatherized homes so they didn't have to turn the heat on as much to stay comfortable, we would have both effects. They would be warmer. They wouldn't be exposed to as much cold. That would make them healthier. And they would have lower energy bills. And so they would have more money to spend on medicine, food, or daycare or other things that they value, even if they're not related to health. Yeah. And I think that's a good point also in that like sometimes you don't necessarily need to know the why to figure out something that you want to do. Let's get into those results. So what did you find overall in terms of the effect of this natural experiment on heating prices in terms of winter mortality? We find that when the price of home heating increases, the mortality rate increases. And 
we can look at different causes of death and we see that the effects are mostly driven by cardiovascular causes and respiratory causes. So first of all, those are the causes of death that are big. Those are some of the biggest causes of death in the United States. But these are also the causes that they spike up the most proportionately. So there's a 5% increase or 10% increase when the price of heating doubled. And this lines up with what the medical profession would say are some of the aspects of our health that are most vulnerable when we're exposed to the cold. So I'm not a medical doctor, I'm not the expert, but the experts point to strokes and heart attacks as our health risks if we are exposed to cold. Mm. So you want to think about this as a family that is facing a higher heating bill. Part of their trade-off is to keep the house a little bit colder, that puts them at risk for a heart attack or a stroke or pneumonia to become more serious. What our study is able to do is, because we are looking at the entire U.S. or the lower 48 states, we can look across the U.S. and be able to detect these effects that heart attacks do increase when the heating price goes up, strokes do increase when the heating price goes up. So one way of thinking about the magnitude, it makes it seem small that the mortality rate went down by 1.6% for households that use natural gas for heating when heating prices fell by 40%. But when you think about what's at stake across the U.S., it ends up being a very big number. That 40% drop in the price of natural gas saved 11,000 lives per year. So one implication is when we're thinking about what are the costs and benefits of keeping energy prices low through whatever policies, this is a benefit. People have lower heating prices and that saves lives. But I also think that the implications of our study speak to some of the policies that are being done here in Washington, which is by seeing that high heating prices can cause so many deaths, it makes us appreciate the benefits of policies to cushion those high heating bills, like weatherizing the home or providing financial assistance to people with their bills. And so I want to come back to that cost-benefit question because I think it's really important and something that is worth digging into a little bit more. But do you have a sense of if there's any differentiation or what we in the research field would call heterogeneity in the effects of like who this really seems to affect in terms of heating prices? When we look at those differences across groups, we see that these effects are much bigger in places with a high poverty rate. Our data doesn't allow us to know each person's income level or are they below the poverty line, but we know for a community what percentage of that community falls below the federal poverty line. What we find is that we can divide U.S. counties into two groups, the ones that have above median poverty rate and the ones that have below median poverty rate. And we see that this translation of heating prices into mortality is three times as big in the counties that have the high poverty rates. This isn't surprising in the sense that it's lower income households that have to turn down the heat because they can't afford their bill, or when they can't afford their bill, it's not movies that are being cut back, it's medicine and food. But it does really emphasize that heating prices, which for many listeners might not seem like they're a life and death situation for households that are living in poverty, they can be. And we need to think about policies targeting low-income households to try to help them with those high energy bills. And what about age? Is there any differences between age or anything about the health of individuals that might be affected by this in one way or another? Or is it a particularly vulnerable population, older or in declining health that you're able to look at? 
Yeah, so most of the mortality in the U.S. is among older Americans, more deaths of people age 70 and above than below. And in line with that, we find that the effects of high heating price on mortality, that's concentrated among older Americans. Even within that comparison of older Americans, I think there is an important distinction of whether someone died of a heart attack, and if it weren't for the cold they experienced, they would have had a heart attack two days later or three days later. The high heating prices still had a negative effect on their life, but it was three days. That's quite different than if the person who had a heart attack and died because of their exposure to cold would have lived another year or two years or three years. And so one general finding, not from our study, but from previous research, is that deaths from cold, from being exposed to cold, actually shave off more years of life than deaths from heat and heat waves. Both are terrible, but when people look at the people who died from a heat wave, how long would they have lived? It's often a week, a month. Heat waves tend to kill people who are very vulnerable in terms of their health, whereas cold seems to kill people who are maybe not in perfect health, but Mm -hmm. are pretty healthy. They might have lived two years or three years. And that means that if we are able to prevent those deaths, we're adding a good number of healthy years to people's lives. So within our study, we can't go out two years or three years, but as far as we can look out in the data up to six months, we don't see that these effects diminish when we go out because we're just moving or displacing mortality. We're seeing that if it's displacing deaths, it's displacing them for six months or a year or even longer. That's great. So even underscoring the importance of it is that, you know, a lot of times in these benefit cost scenarios, talking about a researchy term of quality adjusted life years, kind of this idea that a year with your family or yourself or anyone, friends, things like that, a year matters more than a day in people's lives and the lives of people that they care about and the overall health of the country. So seeing that we're just kind of saving a day here or there, but really years in people's lives really kind of further underscores this issue, which I think is really exciting about it. So let's actually continue to go a little bit deeper into that benefit cost question, but kind of beyond the study. Jennifer and Dawit, you work in the energy and environment space, so I'm not going to make too many prejudgments about your feelings about the environment. But when I say the word fracking, what's your general reaction? And I can share mine afterwards, but I'd love to hear what your general thought about this hydraulic fracturing or fracking that creates the change in natural gas prices. So I find it very interesting, right? Because fracking from an environmental standpoint is quite negative, right? But when you look at it in terms of your study, SEMA, and saying, oh, fracking allowed more access to natural gas, which therefore was connected to lowering the mortality rate in the United States, it leaves me a little conflicted. Mm -hmm. How about you, Dawit? Is that your general thought on fracking as well? That's for sure. But always the environment for me. Mm -hmm. takes the higher standard. And I think that's the question here. Like, how do we think about these types of trade-offs? Because I think a very similar opinion generally, because what you hear about is fracking, you know, leading to these negative health outcomes, you know, poisoned water, actually even contributing to earthquakes in some parts of the country, like all of these negative things. But the interesting thing about rigorous research is we need to think of these things in totality. So as you're thinking about this, Seema, how do you think about those trade-offs? Or how might an economist think about those trade-offs and what you should do? Or do we have to think about them as trade-offs? Yeah, so many policies have winners and losers. And Mm -hmm. sometimes those winners and losers are different 
families with the same outcome. If you change the tax system, some households pay more taxes, some households pay lower taxes. With fracking, it's even more complicated because it's different types of outcomes. How much should we weight the environment? How much should we weight people's health? So for me, our results did make me rethink some negative opinions about fracking, which were mostly I hadn't thought too deeply. I just read some stories in the news. And I think for someone who's more economically comfortable than some of the households that really face this choice between heating or eating, it made me realize that this benefit of cleaner water, you know, that benefits everyone, whereas the lower heating prices, they benefit everyone, but they're going to be much more important for poor households. So I think when we think about environmental justice, we also have to think about lower prices, and lower prices might mean something different or be more meaningful for poorer households. Just one other aspect of natural gas expansion that I think often gets underappreciated is that even from the environment, we have to think about different dimensions of it. So it contaminates water that's been linked to birth defects and other really bad health outcomes. But it's also used in generation of electricity. And in many places, it's displaced coal. So if you are now using natural gas to generate electricity instead of coal, that's less particulate matter. So one dimension of the environment actually might have benefited from fracturing. So I'm not going to take a stance on whether it's good or whether it's net good for the environment. But I think it's a lot more complicated and subtle than some of the debate on either end of the political spectrum sometimes makes it seem I think for me, kind of just taking a step back about evidence, there's one kind of evidence that you could see with your own eyes, and the anecdotes are so powerful that you're convinced of them, like the contaminated water and people becoming sick or changes in patterns of birth in a county right there where the shale gas production is taking place. What we're seeing is not an effect you could see with your own eyes. All of the work that you're doing in D.C., you won't be able to see with your own eyes. We saved this person's life. And so this is where big data and statistics are valuable because that less visible effect, the effect you can't see with your own eyes, you still need to multiply it across 300 million people in the U.S. And in total, it could be bigger than the local harm to health that's happening in the communities. Again, I don't want to take a stance on that. We have to think about how we value infant health versus older health, how we value birth defects versus mortality. I'm making more of a general point that one of the things that data science allows us to do is to measure some of these imperceptible but in aggregate really big effects. And they're as important when we want to think about cost benefit of different policies. It certainly would. And when you talk about 11,000 lives saved a year, it certainly gives you pause and a little bit more color to how we think about the conversation. And unfortunately, when we're thinking about these things, there's not always a clear route, but it does seem clear from your research that if we can do things to lower costs, that we're going to see benefits for people. How we do it, I think, is the very important question. So moving on to that larger picture of reducing energy costs, particularly for low-income residents, how should we think about these results in the district and for our work as district government? What does it make you think we should be doing more of or doing differently? Sure. I think it shows and provides visibility about the importance of the work of the department. It shows that you know, as DeWitt mentioned, when he completes the installation quality control inspection, he sees the emotional impact that it's making on the lives. And given SEMA's data that she's provided, I think it kind of reinforces the importance of this work, the importance of continuing to fight and to support those who need this help. SEMA, hearing your work reinforces the career path that I have chosen. So thank you. 
But the other thing is, I think the DC government traces through the whole spectrum from weatherization through renewables. And I have actually witnessed and see people who receive all the services, weatherization, the solar for all, have zero bill. Yes, Solar for All is a DOEE program. The mayor mandated 100,000 homes receive solar benefits by 2032. So DOEE is working to achieve that goal through outreach and working with the community. And oftentimes, for those members who are participating in Solar for All, sometimes their systems generate more energy than they've used, so they receive a check from PEPCO. So sometimes it can even mean that they receive, you know, an extra $50 a month that can be used towards groceries, daycare, or maybe fun leisure activities. And for you, Jennifer and DeWitt, what sorts of other research would you really think could help inform or change the way or help direct your efforts on the ground? What, would, what are the questions that you would love for folks like SEMA or the lab at DC to be able to answer? I think it would be really great to see SEMA's research, but on more of a smaller scale. How is disconnections or increase in energy costs affecting our residents? Maybe what's the mortality rate in D.C.? And maybe break that down even further based on wards and just see how that's affected. And I think that could also help us pinpoint the specific communities that maybe we need to conduct more outreach. Mm. Maybe we need to really do more grassroots knocking on doors and make those connections to those communities that maybe we aren't reaching. So, Because it's one thing to have a program, but it's another thing for people to be able to take advantage of it. And we know from a large body of literature that people do not always take advantage of those things for a variety of reasons that we in the government can help them with. And so that's actually one of the projects that we came to meet you all through, which is called Front Door, which for the lab at DC is working to bring all homeownership programs into one common entry point, at least in terms of people figuring out what they are eligible for. So we're excited to be working with you all on it. And Seema, a similar question to you, but from the research side of things, are there things that you know about from this work or ideas that have spawned that you think might be particularly important for DC to consider or to consider expanding? I take away from the study that it's really important to find ways to help low-income households cover their heating bills. And DC is already doing a bunch of great things. As an economist, I would love to have better evidence on which of the ones have the highest payoff. If you had a little bit more money, should you be doing more weatherization? Should you be doing more of the bill assistance? And so I think this is a great example where the natural experiment I did would be a nice compliment with a field experiment where you tried out some policy innovations, expanded some of your existing programs, and used that experimental variation to see what is happening. You won't probably be able to see impacts on mortality because you won't have the same population in the entire U.S., but by collecting your own data, I used U.S death certificate data, you could collect your own data, you could look at other sets of health outcomes and people's well-being. The question we 
talked about earlier, what are people able to spend more money on now that they have a weatherized home or they have heating assistance? That's really nice to understand kind of what other benefits are we not necessarily capturing. I also think mental health is a really important kind of outcome that we're not able to look at in our study, but that would be really interesting and really important to quantify those benefits from some of these programs. So, you know, if I got to decide what studies the district did in this area, I think some of the programs you're doing and some of the ideas you have of tweaking them or expanding them, it would be nice to test those experimentally and use those to help guide policy within D.C., but also speak to a broader set of your counterparts around the country to help them understand what are the benefits of these programs, including on people's mental health. That's really interesting. I think underscores a really important point, which is research like this at the national level can really illuminate the importance of doing something like lowering heating costs, particularly for low-income residents. But how we do that is almost an equally important question because no one snaps their fingers and just lowers them like that. There's a whole set of different options you might consider, and some of them may be better or worse uses of taxpayer money and better or worse for residents. So I think that's a really important point to underscore. Well, Seema, Jennifer, DeWitt, thank you so much for being on the podcast at DC today. And we really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast at DC, a production of The Lab at DC. Our producer is Nellie Moore, and our podcast intern is Tim Madden. We want to know what you think of the podcast at DC, and we want to hear your ideas for what topics we should be covering. Go to tinyurl.com slash the podcast at DC to take part in our listener survey. The link is also in the description of this episode. Your feedback will help us improve our content and production quality, and it'll also allow us to better serve district residents and improve evidence-based governance in DC. If you liked what you heard, visit our website at thelab.dc.gov, where you can sign up for our mailing list. You should also follow us on Twitter at thelab underscore DC. However you choose to connect with us, you can find more information on our work and stay updated on what we're doing. For more episodes of the podcast at DC, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Sam Quinney.